Well, as we know, names matter. Uh, They matter because a person's name communicates something to that person or about that person to others as well as to that person. For example, when a child uses the name mom or dad, it communicates not only who this person is, either mom or dad, but also the type of relationship that he or she has with that person. And up to this point in the story, Moses has only used one name for God, and that name is Elohim. He uses it some 35 times here in the first chapter of Genesis. And this name is appropriate uh, because it's the name that portrays God as this majestic creator of the universe, this all-powerful God. But then there's a change in verse 4. A change to what? Well, the change to the way that Moses addresses God. In verse 4, it says, These are the records of heavens, the heavens and the earth concerning their creation, At that time, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Then Moses began to switch from calling God, God, to Lord God. Now, in our English translations, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But in Hebrew, the name there is Yahweh Elohim. That This becomes the dominant name that Moses uses from now on to the end of chapter 4. Well, why does that matter? Remember, names have meaning. They communicate something about who a person is. And in this case... Yahweh Elohim speaks to the personal covenant nature of God. God who relates to and redeems his people. It's the personal name of God. In this phrase, Yahweh Elohim, throughout this passage, underscores the personal relational nature of God. And this is quite appropriate because in this section, as we start in chapter 2, in this passage, we find Moses focusing in on man and God and the relationship to one another. So I want to look at three aspects this morning speaking to God's relationship with man. The first one is this, is the formation of man. Verse four, these are the records of heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At that time, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. No shrub of the field had grown, yet grown on the land. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land. There was no man, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Now to be clear, this is not a second creation account as some have tried to say, but rather Moses, what he's doing here is he's honing on in on a very important aspect of creation. And what is that aspect? Well, it's the forming of man. And verse four is set up to mirror Genesis 1.1. And then verses five and six to mirror the beginning of Genesis, the condition of the earth prior to the creation of man. And we see the earth is nothing, then God speaks and there's life, but there is no man, he says in verse five, to work the ground. And then verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. There's two things that we learn just from this verse. There's lots of things, but two things in particular that I want to point to this morning. The first is this, is man is carefully formed. He's carefully formed. Look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the, from the ground. This word formed is an important word. It indicates that the act of creation here was by careful design. It carries with it the idea of intention or skill like a craftsman like a potter in clay. You know, in middle school, in eighth grade, I was in art class, and somehow I made it into advanced art class in eighth grade. I'm not sure. But I did some pottery, and I think the the professor, the teacher at that time, liked my pottery, and he moved me into advanced art, from which that point on, I was like, why am I even in this class? But I remember making uh, pottery in art class. And you'd sit down at the wheel, and you'd sit down, and you have this just lump of clay, formless, 
laying there on the wheel. And then you began to spin the wheel and you add water to the clay and you use your hands to begin to form and craft this pot or whatever you were making. In my case, something that was supposed to hold something is in the case. And you're making this piece of clay, forming it into something very specific. There was intentionality. There was skill. And the picture is, God is the potter and we are the clay and that God has handcrafted us. You think about today, uh, we go to stores or you go to a coffee shop or whatever the place may be and it says handcrafted or handmade. And what you do is you walk and you see handcrafted and handmade and one thing you should think to yourself is it's just gonna cost more money. That's what's gonna happen. But people will pay more money for the thing that is handmade than the thing that is supposedly not handmade, whatever that means. We'll pay more money. Why? Because we see there's inherent value, there's skill, there's intentionality, and we will pay more money than for it. In this picture, this image here of being formed by God is that we have been handmade by God. It speaks to God's intentionality with humanity. Again, he's the potter, and we're the clay, and he's working out his design. In other words, man is not some afterthought, but rather he is an intentional product he's intentionally made we are intentionally made they got focused in on the creation of man and so man is carefully skillfully intentionally designed by God that he wove us together as the psalmist says in our mother's womb that he hand knitted you there's person or there's relationship personal intimacy there between God and man. Number two, then man is uniquely formed. So not only is he carefully formed, but there's a uniqueness to man. To be unique is to be the only one of its kind. It's to be unlike anything else. And that's what, in one sense, man is. He is unique amongst all of creation. Why? Well, you notice something about with much of creation, God speaks it into existence. But that's not what he does with man. In verse seven, it says, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. That instead of speaking, he formed man out of the dust like a potter takes clay and shapes it into a pot. And the fact that man was created from dust in part makes him unique among God's creation. But there's more. It's not just that God formed man, he handed, wove him together, so to speak, handcrafted him. He's intentionally made. But then look at what the author says, Moses says in verse 7. He formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. He breathed the breath of life into man. Think about what does it mean that God breathed the breath of life into man? Well, man is more than just physical appearance. He's more than just physical substance, dust, dirt from the ground, so to speak, but there's spirit. We can picture it this way, I think this is a helpful image, is that Adam's body is lying there on the ground been formed by God, taken from the dust and formed, and he's lying there on the earth, lifeless. And then God leans over and he breathes. He breathes his very own breath into the nostrils of Adam. The God, who is the source of life, directly places life with inside man. And so what is the breath of God? Well, it's the life and power of God given to animate humanity to animate Adam and then all of humanity. And as a result, what Moses says in verse seven is that the man became a living being. 
That God breathed into Adam life and he becomes this living being. And this word being can also mean soul. That humanity, as human beings, we are living souls. And this is unique to humanity. This is not true of anything else in all of creation. God, he forms the animals up from the ground like man, but he does not breathe life into them as he does with man. Instead, what God does is he gives life. He animates humanity. He gives us souls, eternal souls. And in part, this communicates deep intimacy with God. That nothing else in creation has the breath of life, the breath of God breathed into it. And so we are unique. We are unique in the sense that we're made from the ground, but more importantly, that the life-giving power of God has been given to us, that we are made alive, living, breathing beings, eternal souls. And so you see man, the formation of man, carefully, uniquely formed. The second aspect then is the placement of man. Think about where man is at. God formed Adam, caused him to become a living being, totally unique in all creation of all things. Then he places Adam somewhere in particular. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So he makes Adam, and the way this reads is he forms Adam, he forms this garden, and he brings Adam into this garden. And this garden is called Eden. And Moses gives us some information or data about Eden. Verse 9, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pizan, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium, Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, what is the point of this information? Is it like a treasure map that if you go locate the four rivers and then there you find where Eden is at? Well, no, I don't think that's what some people have tried to do, but I don't think that's the purpose, the intent here of Moses is trying to help us locate where Eden was, so to speak. What's the purpose then? Well, it's to give us an understanding of where God was placed in creation. The word Eden has to do with luxury and delight. In other words, this was a place that was delightful to live. It was a lavish garden full of trees Rivers and minerals, as one commentator stated, it's a fertile area, a well-watered oasis with large trees growing, very attractive. I just have a few pictures here um, uh, of some areas that have large growing, luscious green trees. You can keep going just to give some sense of where uh, or of what it was like. Creation, Adam and Eve, the rivers, the water, the green, the trees, the life that was there, the minerals, everything that he needed. And this was a place of paradise. God had placed man in paradise. And it wasn't only a paradise or a place of luxury because it was a lavish garden with all that man needed to live and thrive. But more importantly, God, God was there. That God dwelled with man in the garden. They walked together. 
This is where life was at, the life-giving presence of God was there. There was complete joy and satisfaction, complete peace, harmony. Though man is naked, he lacked nothing. Man carefully created by God, crafted by God, and then kissed life into him by God. This perfect creation, the pinnacle of God's creation. He had the blessing of God, an unparalleled presence of God. Adam, he's living in perfect communion with God. That Eden was a place of luxury and delight, not simply because of what was there, the physical substance of what was there, the trees, the minerals, the water, but because of God, God was there. That man then is in this immediate relationship with God, deriving life from God. Bonhoeffer, he writes about this and says, Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. I mean, that, that's the intent, is that man would be with God. And what we find in the creation story is that man was made and he was placed in this paradise with God, experiencing all of God's provision and blessing and intimacy and perfect communion with him. The man, man is uniquely created and he's created for God to be with God in relationship with him. But this then brings us to the third aspect of the responsibility or the the relationship between God and man is this, the responsibility of man. And so man is in paradise. Adam, as we know, he's in paradise with God and he's in relationship with God. But what is now Adam to do? Well, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. For on that day, or on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we are told here kind of the terms of the relationship between Adam and God, what he is told to do or allowed to do and what he is told not to do. And at this point, there's kind of a couple different directions to go. You can hone in on verses 16 and 17 in particular, the terms of what's typically known as the covenant between God and man. Verse 15, and a theme that we see uh, throughout here in this idea of work. Then verse 15, what Adam is given to do, what he's told to do by God is this, is to, in the Garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. As human beings, like we have been created by God, we've been created by God to work, to do good works. And so work is a huge part of our lives. And so I want to spend the next few minutes here just honing in on this idea of work as it relates to our relationship with God. Because this is, again, a large part of what we do, an important part of our lives. And so it's important for us to understand what work is in one sense and what it is not. So there's four just truths I wanna walk through here this morning in regard to work and our relationship here with God. First is this, is work is good. When we think about work, when we think about doing work, task, performing deeds, it is good. It's good for us to Work. Now, how do we know that? Well, first, because God himself worked, and then he gave that same command to man to work. And God is good, and what he does is good, and God worked. So in, the seventh day, or on, in Genesis 2-2, he says, on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done. 
that when God looks at his creation, the things that he has made, he describes it as work. And so God is one who worked, and he then gives this responsibility to Adam in the garden to work the garden, to watch over the garden. So it is in part good because God himself is good and he works. Second, it's also good because God was, or work was given to man before the fall. Think about when was Adam in the garden? And when was Adam given the command to work the ground? Well, it's in Genesis 2, which comes before Genesis 3, or when Adam and Eve sin, and then sin enters the world. And as we see, or we will see in Genesis 3, part of the curse of sin, the result of sin, is that work is affected. But work is not cursed, but the ground itself is cursed, making work hard, even though oftentimes it feels like work itself is the curse, right? I mean, sometimes you wake up and you're like, Oh, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do anything. It feels like you just are kind of doing it to accomplish the ends, to, meet, the ends to, to get to where you want to go, to make money, to something you're supposed to do. And so work, oftentimes we don't look at it through a lens of it being good and a blessing, something that has been given to us by God, but it's something that we seem to think is a curse given to us by God. Like what perfection is, what life is like, what paradise would be like is to never have to do anything. But when you look into the garden, Adam before the fall of man, Adam was given the responsibility to work. That work then is not something that is a curse to us, but something that is good for us, given to us by God. It's a blessing to us. The work is first good. Second, work is an opportunity to love and serve our neighbor in God. It's an opportunity in short to fulfill the great commandment. Verse 15, again, Adam is placed in the garden to work and watch over. And that word work in Hebrew also means serve. And to work then is an opportunity for us, for you and I, to serve, which is an opportunity for us to love. Because what is love? Well, love in part is an action. It's not just a feeling. And in the action of loving, we're meeting needs in other people's lives oftentimes at an expense or a cost to our own life. We're giving of ourselves, And so the purpose of work is not to find fulfillment. It's not simply to make lots of money. It's not to be famous. But it's a way for us to serve and love our neighbor. You know, the great commandment Jesus says is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And work should not be something separated from this command. Rather, our work then becomes an opportunity to live out and fulfill this command. For in our work, there's an opportunity to practically to, to serve and to love others by meeting real needs in their life. Just think about things that you do or profession that you have. Think about an auto mechanic, that they are serving people in very real ways by fixing their car. Or you think about moms staying at home with their kids. They're serving their kids in real ways by being there for them, direct them, to shepherd them, in some cases, and to teach them. Or you think about a lawyer or a doctor or a construction worker. All of these professions and many, many more and just the mundane tasks of life are opportunities for us to serve others, to carry out the great commandment in our life. That regardless of the work, that we are doing, the purpose is to serve and to love others or to work 
is about loving and serving others. And God then is using our lives to meet real needs in others' lives. And at the same time, in our work, not only do we love others and serve others, but we do so with God. That work, work is commonly used, or this, this term, word work in the Hebrew, is commonly used in a religious sense of serving God. So our work should not be disconnected from serving God, but we should see our work is an opportunity to serve God, to worship God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave something, me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And this is what Jesus says, and the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The part of the way that we serve God and love God is through our loving and serving of one another. It's through working God is using our work to bless and serve others. And as we do, we are serving God. And so work is an opportunity to fulfill the great commandment. Number three, which is closely related to this, is God uses our work as a means. You become a means, a means for God to carry out his work in the world. In other words, he is using you and me to serve and bless his created world to provide and care for that which he has made. In verse 15, when you think about Adam here, he's in the garden. God takes him, places him in Eden. He gives him the instruction to work it and to watch over it. You think about this for a moment. God, he could have created everything. He could have created man, put man in the garden, and then stopped, if you will. The God himself could have worked the garden. He could have watched over the garden, but he didn't. Instead, he gave that responsibility to Adam. And so man, in his work, functions as a means to accomplish the very purposes of God, to provide and to care for his created world, that God is using you. He's working through man as a means to carry out his purposes. Think about just life for a moment. That how our needs are oftentimes met. The way that we are oftentimes blessed is through another person. Your car breaks down, what do you do? You take it to a mechanic. And that mechanic fixes your car. And in that way, you are served and you are blessed. Pipe breaks in your house. You fiddle around with it for a bit longer, only breaking it more, learning you should just call a plumber right away, right? You just, you find someone to help fix it for you. And in that way, you're served and blessed. Or you think about the gospel, How do people come to faith? Well, Paul says the way that people come to faith in Christ in part is they must hear. They must hear the word of God in order to believe in the word of God. And who does God use to communicate the gospel? Animals? No. Creation? Well, in a big sense, it speaks to the reality of God. But he uses you and me, our mouths, to open up our mouths to communicate his good news to the world. That our work is a way 
for God to interact, to reach the world, to provide and care for, to serve and love his creation. Fourth then, work reflects the image of God. This is one of the ways that we most clearly represent God, that we reflect God is through working. How or why? Well, just think about it for a minute. In God's work of creation, he created. He describes his creation as work, and he made, he created, and he gave. In our work, oftentimes, what are we doing? We are creating and we are giving. We are taking resources in some cases that God has made, and we are using those resources to create something for the benefit and blessing of others. Whether it be serving somebody a cup of coffee, you know, so they can function for the rest of the day. Or whether it's creating a financial report using a computer or building a road. That we are using the things that God has given to us and then sometimes creating or someone creates them for us and then we are taking those things and we are giving. And as you work, as we work, in some way we will give like God who has given to us. And we will oftentimes create like God has created. And so our work is not only something that God does, but it's something that he blesses us with. And working then is a fundamental way for you and I to represent the image of God, even in the most mundane tasks of life. And it's not only through the simple act of doing. I don't want to reduce it down to just simply you just do something, therefore, and that's what it is. It's, it's working for God and God is using you and you're reflecting God, but it's also in how we go about our work. You think about your attitude and your work ethic. Just think about your own life and your attitude and your work ethic as you do things, as you do the works that God has prepared for you to do, as you work at your job or you're doing things around the home, whatever it might be. What is your attitude and what is your work ethic? Much of the world, the attitude in the world is to complain. And unfortunately, most, much of the time, what we can find ourselves doing is complaining. But what happens if you go to work and you work with an attitude of gratefulness and joy? Well, something happens. You reflect God. I don't think Adam was in the garden of Eden beginning before the fall, the fall of man, before sin, and he was complaining about all the things he had to do. No, Adam was in the garden, and he was at peace with God. There was a great joy in his life as he was working and carrying out the things of God in the garden. There was this great attitude. And so it should be with us, is that our attitude is a way for us to reflect God in our workplace, but so is our work ethic, working hard and doing things excellently. And see, as believers, this carries with it even more significance as we think about working, because oftentimes, who are we working around? People who don't know Christ. And not only in doing work or performing tasks, but in how we work, meaning our attitude, in which we actually perform the task, gives us opportunities to more specifically reflect Christ to those around us who don't know Christ. You know, Paul talks about in Philippians how when you don't complain, but you are thankful, you're grateful, you shine like a, you're, you shine like a star, a bright star. 
And one of the ways that we can stand out and image God in our workplace is through having a good attitude, and it's through working hard. You know, someone looks at you, looks at your life, and thinks, why, why do you have so much joy in just doing whatever it is you do? Why do you have such a good attitude when nobody else does? Or why do you work hard and do, try to do things so well when no one's going to care if you actually do that well or not? Why do you care? Well, because God cares. Because God cares. And there's an opportunity for doors to be opened, for the gospel to be spoken. That our lives then become a picture that reflect Christ. And not only do they just simply reflect Christ, people look at your life and they're wondering what's going on and it opens opportunities for you to speak about Christ. And so our work, whether it's in our home or at our profession, whatever it is, has great value and purpose. It's not something that we should begrudge, but something that we should embrace as a blessing from God in a fundamental way for us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But there's another side here of work and of imaging God, and that is rest. That if you look at the first three verses of chapter two here, it caps off the creation of Genesis chapter one with rest. That the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, and on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. That there's six days of creation, Six days of God working, and after day six, God rests. Now, why does he rest? Is he tired? You know, like, we get tired. Is he worn out from all the speaking he was doing? You know, he had to, he had to rest for a little bit, rest his vocal cords. Well, no. God is not tired like we are tired. But God, he rests in the sense that he ceased from working. And he ceased from working because all that he had created was done. All that he made had been created. That he had completed all of his creation, so he ceased from working on the, day, on the seventh day. Now, it's not that God is like ceased from working in the sense that he is completely distant and separate from all that goes on in life. No, God is sovereign. He's in control. He's sustaining the world. If he didn't sustain the world, everything would stop working and everything would dissolve and fall apart. But God is not actively creating like he does in days one through six. And as a result, what we find in verse three is that God blessed the seventh day and declared that day holy. For it rested on it, he rested from all his work of creation, that God blessed day seven. The seventh day, which is, we understand to be the day of Sabbath, of rest, was then therefore the blessing was made to stimulate, to animate, to give fullness of life. That the holy day here is this day that it's separated from all other days. There's six days of work and then a day of rest. And so the Sabbath day was this day of complete rest where you would cease from your typical labor of life. And it was designed to be a blessing that as God's people would observe it, it was designed to bless them and to be essential for their own spiritual growth, spiritual health and growth. This day, it implied that all of humanity would cease from work and it implied that there is more to life than simply working. There's more to life. 
For some of us, we find our life, or we're trying to find our life in our work. But what the seventh day, the Sabbath rest does, it says, no, 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 there's more to life than working. It reminds us of where life is ultimately found. It's not in the work, not in what we do, but it's in the one who created and gave us work, God. And when we rest, this is the pattern that began to take place that the people of Israel would follow. And subsequently, we are to follow this pattern where we work and we rest. And when we work unto the Lord, we reflect God. And when we rest unto the Lord, we reflect God. One is not necessarily more important than the other. Both are important. And both are opportunities for us to image God. We work hard and we rest hard, if you will. This opportunity for you and I very practically to trust God. Because see, oftentimes when we work, we're working because I have to get things done. If I don't work, things won't get done. And there's this sense of relying on ourselves that oftentimes can take place in our work. Like I've got to get this done or it's not going to get done. But what day seven, the seventh day of resting does, it says, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you that the world will function and operate without me having to work. Yeah, I trust that you're in control, that you're sovereign above everything else. And for many of us, we're kind of in one of two places. Either we, we work, but we have bad attitudes, and we need to grow in that area. And seeing what our work is, is it's a blessing from God, a way for us to love and serve our neighbor as we love ourselves. But then we also need to learn to rest like God. And some of us have a hard time resting. We have a hard time ceasing from working. And I think what it goes down deep to is the sense, do I really trust God? Do I trust that resting is a blessing from God like work is a blessing from God? Do I, do I really believe that what God says to me for me, that it's, it's a blessing that day seven has been blessed? Do I believe that to be true? That in both spaces, oftentimes what's being tested is, do I believe God? Do I believe that his work is good and necessary? And that work came before the fall, that it's not something that I should begrudge or hate or lament, but something that God has given me, that we are his workmanship, that he has made us to carry out good deeds. And at the same time, do I believe rest? Ceasing from my labor, taking time to reflect on, to meditate on, to recognize, okay, God, you are good. God, what I need to rely on and trust in is you, not me. The world is in control by you, not me. And so for some of us, we just need to sit in a place of more rest than we do work. We need to trust God in both, that both of these are blessings from God and ways for us to image and reflect God into the world. And where I want to land then just simply is with Christ. When we think about work and rest, we should think of Christ. Because work and rest has been so distorted and twisted because of our sin. And oftentimes we look at work as a way to find life, to find our joy, or we look at work as a thing that we need to do certain things in order to get the favor of God. 
And what we find in Christ is that Jesus worked. He accomplished the great feat that needed to be accomplished, was the payment for sin. And Jesus came, and like man, like us, but he never sinned. And what Jesus did is he came and he died in our place to pay for our sin. He accomplished the one thing that we could never do, which is to remove our sin, to bring us back into a right relationship with God. Jesus. Jesus, he came. And what Paul tells us is that we don't need to do anything to earn the favor of God, but the favor of God has been given to us through Christ. And what happens is we see that from Christ, then I go and I work. I do what God has given me to do out of a joy and celebration and thankfulness for what God has done for me in Christ. And at the same time, our soul is able to rest. That Jesus, he ascended to heaven and he sat down. There is no work left to be done. We don't have to live our life trying to earn the favor of God, to try to make up for the sin that we have committed but our souls can rest in the finished work of Christ. That when Jesus rose again, he conquered death and defeated sin. And to any who would call upon Christ with their faith in Jesus Christ, that they are offered this rest. This day in which we will go to be with God, that we will be restored and in his presence once again. That like Adam who communed with God, walked with God, spoke with God, was living in paradise, that one day we too will be in paradise. That one day we too will commune with God. That we will be in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending Christ to come and die in our place to give us life. Lord, to restore our relationship with you. God, just think about the garden and think about what it would have been like to walk with you, to be in your presence. I mean, what a, what a magnificent reality. And God, that reality has been messed up, but yet there's a day coming when we will be back in your presence, that God, we will walk with you. God, that we will be in perfect relationship with you as we were created to be. And God, we just do ask that you give us a longing for that day. And until that day comes, Lord, that we would be a people, God, who would live in a way that does image and reflect you, that we would work hard, that we would rest well, that we would ultimately trust, God, that your work and rest that you've given to us is a blessing for our own life. Lord, thank you for making us and creating us. Thank you for uniquely forming us. God, we just thank you that you have accomplished what we cannot accomplish through Christ, God, that our sin is forgiven and removed. As a result, God, that we will be in paradise with you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.